Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am a senior clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Before we get to the interview with Dr. Andreas Eklund, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes reviews really help others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review on iTunes from Dr. Dirk Jacobs. He says, Thank you and well done, Dr. Dean Smith, for creating this podcast series. It is wonderful to have access to the thoughts and minds of some of the greatest researchers in the world. I am recommending this series to all of my colleagues. I look forward with anticipation to the coming podcasts and to learning something new from the world of research. Well, thank you, Dr. Jacobs, for your review. I look forward to sharing your clever and flattering iTunes review in a future podcast episode. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation. We're also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, so please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Andreas Eklund. I am really excited that in this interview, we'll discuss topics such as the effect and cost effectiveness of chiropractic maintenance care in a population with recurrent and persistent low back pain, the demarcation of a low back pain episode, psychological and behavioral characteristics of chiropractic patients compared to other primary care patients, and predictive properties of the West Haven Yale Multidimensional Pain Inventory among patients with recurrent and persistent low back pain receiving chiropractic care. Andreas Eklund, DC-PhD, graduated from the Anglo-European Chiropractic College in 2002 and was in full-time chiropractic practice up until 2012 when he enrolled in the PhD program at Karolinska Institute. In 2015, he was a co-founder of a multidisciplinary rehab unit, which today employs 23 persons, working as an integrated team of health professionals, chiropractors, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, dietitians, and massage therapists. He earned his PhD degree in 2016, and the title of his thesis was Recurrent and Persistent Low Back Pain Course and Prevention. He currently works as a postdoc at Karolinska Institute, along with his clinical duties. At the moment, he also serves as the chair of the Scientific Committee of the Swedish Chiropractic Association. His research has mainly focused on psychological factors in chiropractic populations, maintenance care, and he has a particular interest in clinical outcome research applicable to the practicing chiropractor. In 2016, he was awarded Chiropractor of the Year by the Swedish Chiropractic Association and won the EAC Gene Robert Research Award first prize. He is currently one of the 13 fellows of the Chiropractic Academy of Research Leadership, or CARL. Dr. Eklund, it's an honor to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Well, thank you. It's a great honor to be here. 
Great. So uh, we've got a lot of uh, interesting things to talk about. You've been busy these last few years, and uh, and I just want to probe you for <laughs> all the interesting tidbits you've uh, been doing. So uh, first thing is, and I, I ask this of everyone just because I think it's interesting to get the background, how did you become interested in becoming a chiropractor? Well, I, I was, uh, I, I, I'd hope I'd be able to give you a miraculous story, but I, I don't really have one like that. I was, um, I was interested in the health field. I, I had an idea about wanting to work with healthcare in some, some aspect and, uh, uh, as as um, going in, uh, into university, I was very interested in chemistry. So uh, I started a, a degree in pharmaceutical chemistry and was moving on to um, a world within the uh, probably pharmaceutical industry. And uh, during that period, I, I worked uh, extra at pharmaceutical companies within the production and clinical research departments uh, and kind of started realizing that I, I really wanted to be closer to the um, end product, to the patients, and that the pharmaceutical industry was too much of an industry um, f for me. And then during that time period, I met a group of chiropractors that were very enthusiastic about their job, and um, I ended up going to visit them in their clinics and um, had an idea that you know, I, th I think this is something I could do and it looks like a lot of fun. So uh, quite quickly, I uh, decided to change paths and uh, sold my sofa, moved out of the apartment and uh, uh, managed to get late into uh, the program at the ACC. Um, and uh, from there on, it's uh, his history. Excellent. Excellent. I like the sofa part too. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you'd been in practice for quite a few years, about 10 years before going back to pursue your PhD. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your uh, practice of chiropractic and then, and then why you wanted to get back to the PhD? Yeah, so I, I, uh, when I graduated from, from college, I really had no uh, particular research interest. My uh, absolute focus was to, 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 to see patients and become a good chiropractor and develop the skills uh, necessary. Um, and as I went through my, my um, first few years, I started realizing there were a lot more questions than answers um, in practice. And I was um, struggling with how to... To see and comprehend what we do as chiropractors, and um, me and my colleagues, we we were really interested in working on getting um, a, a system where we could evaluate patients and um, have clinical outcome measures uh, that could show that we had a good effectiveness, but. Um, it soon realized that it was much more difficult than uh, I, I thought and I uh, realized I didn't have the tools or the skills necessary to really um, understand uh, it, the results that we would get from the questionnaires and how to use them and and uh, so I got more and more interested in research, started reading um, research books, um, uh, a lot more papers and then I got involved in a uh, um, a, a research-based network uh, of, of, of chiropractors that was headed by a professor from Denmark, uh, Charlotte Lebouf-Ude. And the idea behind this um, practice and network was that we were to do 
good research in a clinical environment and clinicians were uh, got the chance to actually be exposed to the research process. Uh, all the way from planning projects to uh, uh, formulating hypotheses and uh, conducting the experiments and analyzing the data and being part of the, the actual production of the manuscript. So it was a great way as a clinicians to, to get involved with uh, research without having to invest a whole lot of time. And during that process, I was involved in two publications and got more and more drawn to the scientific process or the the, the research process and um, started realizing this is the, the path I want to take and then there was a, um, a PhD position uh, available at Karolinska Institute looking at maintenance care as the main focus and I just I jumped on that and um, and, and that's it from from that on. Well, that's great. And that is such an important issue. We often see patients that uh, feel like they do better after continued care. And, and I'm glad that you are taking up the lead to look at this issue. And, and we're certainly going to dive into that later. But before we get too far, um, I don't know that too, too many people are familiar with the Carl Fellows yet, but you're, you've been, uh, uh, involved in in the the Chiropractic Academy of Research Leadership, and you're one of the fellows. Could you tell us about the Carl Fellows? Sure. Um, it's it's um it's a very interesting program um, that um, I got became part of this year, um, and it's a partnership with the World Federation of Chiropractic and the European Center for Chiropractic Research Excellence (ECRA) with the aim of uh, fostering or mentoring uh, early career researchers um, uh, to become well, the new, the, the, the future leaders of the, the field of, uh, the research field of chiropractic. And the idea is that by picking individuals who uh, have made uh, contributions in, in, in the field of chiropractic research and um, from different disciplines and putting to get them together in a network um, would allow them to develop uh, into professional relationships um, in the future and build research capacity for the profession, um, but also in the short term, um, make use of each other's experiences, uh, talents, skills, um, uh, and and do joint projects that would allow the us, us to increase the research output from the chiropractic research community. And uh, yeah, we have some great mentors, uh, like John Hartvigsen, um, of course, and uh, uh, John Adams uh, from Australia, and of course, Greg Korchuk. And um, um, the idea is that we meet once a year, and this year we were in, in Odense, Denmark. Next year we're going to uh, uh, Canada. And uh, the the third year, we're going to Australia and, and meet up. So uh, the idea behind these meetings is that we get a, an intense um, mentoring um, with workshops and uh, lectures, as, uh, as well as uh, doing group work together, uh, getting uh, closer uh, as, as a research network um, and you know, working on ideas on how we can publish and, and do research together. And it's it's a great program. It's a great group of people, uh, very inspiring to be with, and um, very talented uh, uh, and interesting researchers. So I look look out for what's coming from that program. I think we'll see some very interesting and and great research. 
Yeah, that is, that's really exciting. And nothing makes me more happy than chiropractors getting together for a common purpose to uh, promote research. So <laughs> fantastic. Um, all right. So what I'd like to do next, uh, you've got several papers that you've published, uh, including uh your thesis that you've published uh, on the maintenance care, but let's let's talk about um, one paper that came out last year, and this was prevalence of four consecutive weeks free from pain and its applicability as a marker of a low back pain episode. And this was published in Chiropractic and Manual Therapies. Could you guide us through that paper? Oh, absolutely. Um, we um, we've been very good at defining. Uh, low back pain in terms of in terms of episodes, um, but we haven't been that good at defining what constitutes uh, recovery or the end of an episode or the demarcation of the next one. Uh, so, uh, in a joint, I guess, effort, um, there was a group of researchers who came together and, and put together a consensus of how we defined a low back pain episode. And part of that consensus was defining recovery. And what they did is they said uh, an episode needs to be pain in the lower back lasting for more than 24 hours and preceded and followed by a period of at least four consecutive weeks without pain. So in Denmark, uh, a group of researchers starting to look at this and, and they said, well, let's look at the prevalence of this uh, definition of this idea. Uh, and they started with a, a secondary care population and they found that hardly anyone in the secondary care population um, reported four consecutive weeks with, uh, without pain. Uh, they then repeated the experiment in uh, general population and found that it was very common to see that patients uh, or individuals, because these weren't people seeking care, um, reported that um, almost everyone. So the idea behind this paper was to look at a primary care population and see what is the prevalence of this concept. And within our populations, can we see that there is a degree of dose response that people with a previous history of more pain would uh, have uh, less of, of, of these episodes of, of four consecutive weeks without pain and the ones with more than 30 days the pre uh, less than 30 days the previous year would have uh, more of these so using uh, SMS as our primary outcome measure we followed subjects 262 subjects for six months and recorded uh, um, SMS weekly um, to track their uh, trajectory of pain and we found that a little over half, 59% of the individuals reported one of these episodes and that there was, uh, like we hypothesized, a, a kind of a dose-response uh, relationship to it. So uh, these results kind of, it's, it's the kind of the, the last piece of, uh, of the puzzle that allows us to now look at this further uh, in terms of clinical relevance and, uh, and other aspects that are that are quantifying this um, with regards to health outcomes um, so so not a super interesting paper perhaps but I think an important piece of information that uh, will allow us to do uh, uh, good research in the future and perhaps develop this into an, an interesting uh, clinical measurement as, uh, as chiropractors just as we ask how long they've had their pain we might also be wanting to know how long the episodes between their pain are because that might be associated with uh, a certain degree of clinical characteristics. So that that is the next step to look at that uh, if 
what, what that holds, so to say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know um, about 10 years ago, I remember reading a paper for the first time and uh, it, it went something like, uh, you know, back pain we typically think of is gone after four to six weeks. And then that was it. There wasn't any discussion of the trajectory of back pain or what back pain looked like after that. It was just assumed that it was all gone. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know about where you are overseas, but here it was the kind of thing where, you know, they would stop care early because, or not pay for it at all because, uh, they figured, Oh, the back pain's going to be gone <laughs> within a few weeks anyway. So why bother do anything about it? But, uh, so I'm really glad that you're doing this kind of work and it's so, so, so needed. Certainly. I, th I think the trajectory research is very interesting. Uh, with my, uh, Ibn Aksi and my, my supervisor, she's done a lot of work on trajectories, looking at subgroups and clusters of, of individuals. And one of the main conclusions from that work is that it is highly recurrent. And the way we classically see episodes is it's, it's, it's not really a very good way of um, defining patients, but rather the, the, the individual uh, trajectory for each patient is a better marker of the future than uh, trying to classify them in, in consecutive episodes. So certainly we need to understand a lot more about um, how the trajectories are and what we can expect from our patients. Um, so I, I think what you're saying is it's changing, it certainly is changing that we're moving away from these defined episodes into more um, recur recurrent condition that uh, rather than needs a long time long-term type of management rather than a, a short-term uh, treatment option. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Long, More long-term management, or at least thinking about long-term management, we'll, which we'll definitely get into the, to the maintenance care paper coming up. Uh, the next paper I'd like to talk about is Psychological and Behavioral Characteristics of Chiropractic Patients, and this was published in BMC Musculoskeletal Disorders. Can you guide us through that paper? Oh, certainly. Um, I think this is a, a an interesting paper um, because I th there has been some research uh, before that has looked at chiropractic patients and tried to uh, define them in terms of uh, characteristics. Um, and um, much of them have described them as, as better off in, in terms of... Uh, um, uh, psychosocial class, uh, they uh, seem to have a different profile than other patients. So this study was really the first one, at least, that we've done in Sweden, where we really, from a comprehensive perspective, look at the psychological and behavioral profile um, and compared patients, uh, chiropractic patients, to other populations and trying to figure out what, how do we differ? Do, do we, are we affected by pain differently? Is our group um, by any means different? So our our hypothesis was that the we had four uh, samples that we wanted to compare. We had a, a a group of patients from the primary care sector, um, a, a group of patients with a, a quite substantial amount of low back pain. They were screened in a um, uh, with a, um, a, a, a a screening tool, and they were considered at high risk of developing long-term sick leave due to their pain. So they were by no means a, a group that were pain-free. Um, 
So we thought this group would be worse off in terms of the uh, how they would be affected by their pain compared to the chiropractic group. Then we had two other uh, patient samples from the secondary care sector, from specialized spinal care units um, undergoing multidisciplinary rehab interventions. These were really severely affected patients and were thought to be quite far from the, the patients that we see as chiropractors in, in the clinic. And the the main instrument that we used is was a, an instrument called MPI, uh, which is a short for West Haven uh, Multidimensional uh, pain inventory, which is a rather old instrument, um, but quite broad. It's it's an extensive instrument that looks at uh, psychological and behavioral characteristics from a cognitive behavioral perspective in a quite broad sense. Um, it's it's old, and today we have more modern instruments that are shorter and, and much more applicable in a clinical setting. This was more designed from a research perspective to look at a, a broad range of um, characteristics. And you can describe the, the, the instrument. Um, uh, it, it, there's a number of questions. The Swedish instrument has 36 questions that boils down into eight scales, uh, five psychological scales, uh, which measures pain severity, interference, life control, effective distress, support, and then three uh, behavioral dimensions, um, observing punishing responses, solicitous responses, and distracting responses. And this is really how the patient perceives that their environment is acting um, because of their pain. Are they punishing them for the pain? Are they helping them or are they trying to distract them? Uh, and from these scales, uh, three subgroups have been derived. So depending on how you score on those scales, you can be classified to either of, of three different subgroups. Um, adaptive copers, interpersonally distressed or dysfunctional. Um, the adaptive copers are, are, are the good groups with uh, low pain severity, low interference, low distress, high activity level, high perception of control. Um, Patients that we uh, normally would consider probably uh, chiropractic patients, or a lot of people would. Then we have the interpersonally distressed, who has uh, in particular problems with the dysfunctional behaviors, with low social support, low levels of solicitous responses, and high scores on punishing responses. And then the third group, the dysfunctional, who has pain, high pain severity, marked interference with everyday life due to pain, high effective distress, low perception of life control, low activity level. So these groups are, are, are different on the spectrum and the ID and dysfunctional uh, disc group have been shown in a number of publications that they're associated with a poorer outcome from treatments, um, higher risk of sick leave um, from a wide variety of different chronic pain conditions. So they're valid and, and certainly interesting subgroups. Uh, so when we compared our patients, uh, our hypothesis, hypothesis were that the chiropractic sample would be the, the one least affected by pain, but we found that it wasn't so. The other primary care sample was actually better off, and the chiropractic sample was worse off than there, and was kind of placed in the middle of those two secondary care samples and the other primary care samples. So it was a, a bit surprising to find that, um, and, and rather interesting that patients were so so much affected by pain um, that we really didn't expect. Yeah, why Why do you think that was? Why do you think the chiropractic sample was more affected by pain? I, I don't have a good answer there, but it could be um, because, because of the way data was collected. 
the chiropractic patients, they were screened uh, upon presentation at the clinic. So most of these, they came during a, a really acute episode. So it could very well have been that the that colored the way they answered the, the actual questionnaires. The other patients, they were also under... Uh, under influence of pain when they scored their questionnaires, but um, but it wasn't done in a clinical setting in that sense. Um, on the other hand, the, the instrument doesn't really measure the the acute experience; it measures the chronic experience, and so it shouldn't really affect that much. I think a better explanation would be um, that. In particular, patients in Sweden, they are not really used to paying for uh, healthcare because uh, going to a physiotherapist or uh, an MD uh, within the the uh, traditional healthcare system, you pay a very small amount as a patient. And uh, the patients that do to end up seeing chiropractors, we do have chiropractors within the, the, the medical system, but the ones that were included in this trial they were all clinics where patients paid for the, the, the fee themselves. So it could be that patients, uh, because they were, uh, this might have been a last resort or they were paying uh, because they were in, in, in substantial amount of pains and willing to, to pay that extra um, money to go see a, a private practitioner rather than the traditional healthcare system. So that could also be an explanation. Um, but it, um, like I said, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Huh, that is really, yeah, that's really interesting. Let's talk about another interesting paper, and this is predicting the early clinical course of recurrent and persistent low back pain in a sample of chiropractic patients. This was published in BMC Musculoskeletal Disorders in 2016. And uh, could you, could you uh, tell us about this paper? Sure. So, so this was kind of a um, a follow-up of the of the other paper where where we did that comparison between the different samples. In this case, we used the same instrument, the MPI instrument, to see whether these subgroups could actually predict the short-term outcome uh, from from chiropractic treatment. And uh, well, one of the things I think I have to say first is what we did is we we measured the outcome at the fourth visit and. I, I guess some some of the listeners might think that's really early to measure the outcome, but there's been quite a few studies in in um, Scandinavia that's looked at treatment outcome, and it's it, it's pretty clear that we've been able to identify a subgroup of patients that respond really well to chiropractic care. Some already at the first visit, but um, most certainly people who respond well to to, to treatment by the fourth visit. Um, are much more likely to have a better prognosis at three months, six months, and 12 months down, down the line. Now, this interesting finding about the uh, outcome at the fourth visit, hasn't we haven't really figured out what. We can't really decide this on the first visit based on clinical examination or outcome, uh, other items in the, in the case history. But it's a rather trial and error procedure. You try it and see if it works. And if they do, then you can give them an idea about the prognosis in the future. Um, we, we know, for example, from Greg Korchuk's research in Canada, that they've been able to demonstrate that certain individuals, they, well, they respond biomechanically much better than other patients. Uh, and they also report a, a, an improvement. Why it is, I, I don't think we know that either and i it's it's likely that these are the same patients so this is the theory behind this 
article, we wanted to see perhaps the psychological pro profile could predict this uh, if if the MPI instrument of these subgroups um, perhaps perhaps had any, had any predictive ability to, to define who would have that definite improvement at the fourth visit. So that's why we chose this really short-term outcome um, in this trial. And uh, interestingly, we found it didn't. They, uh, there was really no difference either in pain intensity between the different subgroups or um, the, this uh, reported outcome that we call subjective improvement, which was uh, scored on a five-step scale where they would have to uh, respond to the last step of the scale, which is definitely improved. Um, so this was really interesting. We, we couldn't really predict the outcome based on these psychological variables. And uh, this has been supported with research from Denmark, where they've looked at the start-back questionnaire, which has an en entire different um, construct structure. It looks at different different aspects than the MPI instrument does. It's a much modern, more modern instrument. And uh, implementing that in chiropractic practice hasn't either uh, improved effectiveness or uh, added to the clinical procedure. So it is interesting that there is something about what we do that isn't as much affected by psychological factors that we perhaps previously thought. Yeah, terrific. Or, or at least we haven't found the right variables yet to measure. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Or perhaps it's a, it's, a, it's a different story altogether when you look at the long-term perspective, in particular when we use this instrument that we've used, the MPI, which is a, a more of a, 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 you know, a, a chronic uh, measure than, than acute differences. So perhaps when we look at this from a, um, a long-term perspective, we might see completely, a completely different picture. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Well, the next paper uh, that I want to talk about is uh, hasn't been published yet, but it was one that you did with your uh, doctoral thesis, and this was something that I think you know many chiropractors are going to be really excited to to hear about. And this is the effect and cost effectiveness of chiropractic maintenance care in a population with recurrent and persistent low back pain. Can you uh, can you lead us through that paper? Oh, absolutely! This is uh, this is one of my favorite papers. It's something. It's a project that I've lived with now for oh, over five years, and it's not been a day that I haven't been thinking about it or working with it. Or um, it's, it's it's almost like a, a part of my physical being. Um, <laughs> Great! It's 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 a wonderful study because it, uh, it's based on a really ambitious research effort. I'd like to start off saying uh, over uh, the past. 10 or so years, uh, there's been a number of studies in the Scandinavian countries that have looked at maintenance care as a concept, uh, trying to define what is it that we do during these visits, um, what is it, um, how do we schedule them, what is the frequency, content, what, what is the in, are the indications for, for care. So there's been a, a large effort just trying to map out what maintenance care is. Um, and if you look on PubMed, it'll be under uh, the maintenance care program as, as the first line in the title. So the this is the culmination of all that work, really, that uh, it was all put together in, into this randomized clinical trial where we try to, in the inclusion procedure, as much as possible, mimic the practice procedures of chiropractors, how they think about choosing patients and indications and and um, um, 
trying to actually evaluate what is happening in clinical practice rather than implementing a, a procedure that's, that's kind of new. So that's what, one of the things I love about that, this study. I think we've done a good job at actually, uh, as close as we can, mimic reality. Um, so what we did is we uh, screened patients at the first visit uh, for low back pain. Um, and we wanted to include individuals who were um, had had previous episodes, so they had a recurrent condition. We also wanted individuals who had a more severe condition, where they had had more than 30 days the previous year. Uh, so individuals that fit that criteria and were screened for um, other diseases, of course, that, that didn't fit in or uh, um, pregnancy uh, were excluded. Then we tracked these patients up until the fourth visit because one of the things we found in these interviews with, with the chiropractors before is that the patients that do become maintenance care patients are the ones that respond well. So it's very likely that these fast responders are the ones that at the fourth visit say that they are definitely improved. Those are the ones most likely to become a maintenance care patient. And it also makes sense because that's at the moment the best way we have of defining who are the, the best responders to our treatment. So when, once they've then reached that fourth visit, they were screened for improvement. And the ones that who, who were definitely improved, they then continued in the inclusion procedure. And the chiropractor treated them up until the point where they normally would have said, well, thank you very much. Come back when you have your next episode. Or now let's try to prevent this uh, from reoccurring. Let's put you on a maintenance care schedule. Uh, and that was the, the actual inclusion into the study. When the patient agreed to that, they were randomized to either maintenance care or um, the control group, which was um, um, sub, uh, subject to when, when they had pain. So they would get pain and they would call in and come back if they had another episode. And then we followed them for 12 months. Um, we recorded their pain trajectories with... Um, SMS every week. We had a, um, a, a, a battery of tests in, in the, uh, during the inclusion procedure where we looked at everything from psychological factors to activity limitations, to self-rated health, and uh, a number of other descriptive data on them. And then we had a, a battery of follow-up, a questioner with a battery of follow-up instruments looking at uh, some of the follow-up data on uh, on, that, that we recorded at the first visit. Um, and we managed to recruit 328 subjects in the trial um, and uh, 319 completed the trial. And we had uh, uh, about 99% um, data collection. So we only had less than 1% missing data on the SMS, which is in itself a remarkable achievement with the, with a data set with that high quality. Um, so in, in the, um, for those who of the listeners who've looked at the actual uh, thesis, the, uh, and the, the, the data report in there is a little bit different from the ones that we will report in the actual study when that comes out. Um, because we had a break, I had to break the data, start the data analysis early before all patients had gone through the study to be able to fit it into the um, thesis defense. So uh, we had to impute 
or simulate uh, answers for the ones that were missing. So the, the, the outcomes are a little bit different, but I'll talk about the outcomes in the, um, in the thesis. And then when, um, when the paper will be published, people might see that there are small differences, but the conclusions are still similar to what we found or the same actually that we found in the, that have been reported in the thesis. Um, Right. So, so what we found was that there was a a, an, uh, a clear difference. The uh, the chiropractic maintenance care group they had less pain. Um, and in the thesis, we uh, we've written nineteen point three days uh, between the group, uh, and they had that at only an additional two visits, uh, cost of a two month period uh, of the two, uh, one year period. So for two extra visits, they had almost a working month less with bothersome pain, which is an interesting finding itself. However, when you look at it from a, in, in the entire year, it's only half a day per week. So it's uh, uncertain as to how much the patients actually would experience this, um, this difference, this, this improvement. Um, it could very well be that what we're doing is we're uh, reducing the episodes. So we're cutting the peaks or actually in making sure that they don't get new episodes. If that's the case, then certainly they will, those uh, 19.3 days will be um, clinically relevant. And we don't know that yet there will be projects looking at how the groups differ in, in terms of this difference in pain and also if this different psychological subgroups are respond differently to, to the treatment. So based on that, we, we also did a, a cost-effectiveness analysis where we looked at the cost associated with care from a, a patient perspective. And um, by multiplying uh, the the added extra visits with the and the, the cost of the treatment, travel uh, to and from the, the clinic, and then looking at the hourly wage, mean hourly wage, we could then look at um, an estimated cost for for the the um, entire procedure. And we found that the the cost was 164 euros extra for, for that group per year. Um, and then we also did the 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 similar analysis from a, a societal perspective, where we also not only put a, a monetary value on the actual cost of the treatment, but we include a monetary value of pain on pain, because it's likely that the individuals who suffer from pain, well, they also probably suffer from production loss uh, and. Uh, presentism. We know that people with pain that are at work are less productive than individuals who, who are not. So we tried to model this and estimate it because we had some data in, in the trial to do that. And with that um, estimation, the picture changes a lot. And uh, there is actually a gain from, from using uh, maintenance care. But that's that's a theoretical model that we use there. And in the, the paper, when we publish the cost-effectiveness analysis, it's likely that we're going to redo that, that part of the analysis in, in a different way. Wow, that's um, fascinating. The, the whole study is, it, is, is it fascinating. It's a complex study. I'm not sure I covered everything. Do you, maybe you can ask yeah, a few questions yeah, I'd on, like on areas that I missed. Yeah, for sure. I'd like to ask you some questions. Um, so the, the first one that I have is about the 19.3 days. And first I'll say 
to, to any patient who's had bothersome low back pain, if they get 19 less days of that a year, to me, that's that's pretty huge. Um, I know you mentioned that if you consider that over a year period, it might be like a half a day a week. Did you, did you run any analyses where you looked at how it specifically affected the trajectories of people? Like, in other words, would would it knock them out of work for two or three days and we kind of, you know, the maintenance care affected that? Or uh, do you have any sense of the trajectory of how it went for the individual patients? Well, that's a paper that I'm, I'm working on currently where we're um, looking at this very thing, the, the trajectory of the pain uh, around the actual treatment visits to see did uh, the trajectory look different for the maintenance crew group, M- meaning that did they actually uh, get treated before they had the peak peak pain uh, or was was there no difference in terms of the timing? Because that was kind of the, the idea behind this concept is that the, the timing, because when the, the data from what we do in the actual clinical encounter is very similar with the control and the intervention group. Uh, in fact, we do pretty much the same thing. The dialogue might be a little bit different, but the actual content of the treatment is similar. So we think it has to do with, with timing. So that's, we're going to look at that, um, in a future study, the timing of that, but also, uh, from the point of a survival analysis of seeing can we actually reduce the number of episodes um, of pain? Is it that the, the individuals get fewer ep- episodes? So if you bear with me a, a, a year or so, um, or a few months at least, uh, I think we'll have that in, in publication soon. So that will be an, a real interesting article that will answer many of these questions on particularly how relevant are these 19.3 days. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And I'd love to have you back on at a future date to talk about some of these papers. So with with what you've written on this, um, and let's just say, uh, you know, patient uh, comes to you in your practice and ask you about a paper such as this, how would you explain it to uh, to a patient? Well, I think one of the really important things to say is that we have a really specific sample of patients here. It's not everyone that comes into the clinic that um, we've been able to show that this is uh, important. Uh, so it, it is for the individuals with recurrent pain. It is for the individuals who have uh, a longer episode of pain previously. And it is certainly for the patients who respond well to chiropractic care. So I mean, if you can kind of ask those three questions, really, have you had recurrent episodes? Uh, do Have you had more than 30 days the previous year? And, and by the fourth visit, do they seem to be a fast responder, someone who would answer, I am definitely improved by the fourth visit? Then certainly they are a candidate. And what you certainly can say is that in, in the, the the published paper, the, the estimate dropped from 19.3 to 18.1. So about 20 days per year uh, is what we can gain for, on average uh, from the maintenance care protocol. Um, as to whether that is important for that particular patient or not is really hard to say, but there is now some evidence to suggest that it is one strategy that can help us. We know that pretty much the only other strategy um, that is effective is exercise, and exercise isn't either uh, isn't effective for everyone, uh, and certainly it's not s- something that everyone can comply with. So, if the individual does not do well with exercise, and exercise alone 
cannot prevent pain, then I think this should be considered as an option, uh, as an additional option. Or if exercise is not, it's just not something the patients can comply with. Um, and and uh, and also one of the things we saw is there's a great bar- variability. There's for some individuals, the maintenance care seems to be very successful. It's very very um, effective, and for some individuals, it's 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 borderline. Um, because the confidence interval um, ranges from 4.9 to 33.6. So that there's a wide range there in, in, in which a patients actually do respond to this. And uh, it is a, a, a real possibility is that we, we have psychological subgroups within this uh, a group that might respond better or worse to, to treatment. So that's also a very interesting uh article that is coming in the future looking at can we say more about who are the best ones in this group based on some of the baseline data that we we have the, the most suited patients for but i but i would say for sure we have some evidence now to support this standard protocol of uh, 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 an interval between one to three months as a, a maintenance care um, um, program yeah that's really really neat uh, and i'm glad you mentioned uh, about exercise and some of the other variables, because those those are all really important. And when it comes to evidence based practice, of course, we we'd like to obviously include the patient in that. That's one of the three legs typically of evidence based practice. So if they have a a preference maybe for a chiropractic care, let's say, then uh, you know that might play heavily into their mind as to you know one of the options that chiropractors give people to. Uh, to try to deal with these longer-term uh, effects in the episodes uh, that they may be experiencing. So, terrific stuff. Certainly, and I think it's uh, perhaps important to point out that um, if maintenance care is at the cost of the patient's self-efficacy, meaning that you know when you include them in a maintenance care program, they get more and more passive and rely more and more on passive care, then that's a very bad thing. So I think part of the maintenance care program has to be to support the patient in being also being active uh, and perhaps being someone who inspires them to stay active and exercise and do the most of what they can do themselves and then use the maintenance care as a supporting protocol rather than um, making them more passive. I think that's a really important point to make, um, actually. Very good. Well, Dr. Eklund, one of the goals of this podcast is to motivate and assist practitioners and students to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Could you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors who may wish to become scientists? Um, Absolutely. I I think, for me, one of the most important aspects... um, of, of being able to transition into a research career was that chance of, uh, uh, of being part of that research network. And uh, I, I know there are a, a number of different research networks out there and they all look very different. Um, uh, so I, I think it's down to you know what, what kind of environment you work in and how you live and what are the chances there. But if you have the chance to become actively involved in, um, in research, either as a clinician recruiting 
patients or as part of a kind of a management group managing other clinicians doing research which was what I did in, in, in my my group I think that's a great way not only to connect with uh, uh, researchers um, and kind of make a name for yourself show them that you are interested and that you are reliable and that you you um, you are a candidate for for it, uh, I think that's a great way of getting into it. Um, if that's not a possibility, uh, getting in touch with with researchers and trying to assist them in in different projects uh, is also a very good idea. And also, of course, applying for whatever PhD positions are out there. I think we shouldn't restrict ourselves only to research that pertains chiropractic only. At, at this point, we really need to build a strong research base with a, a large group of researchers that can collaborate and build innovative, uh, strong research environments. And for that, we need people with different skill sets, different ideas, different experiences, different contact networks. So uh, I think also you shouldn't be afraid of of uh, stretching outside of, of the chiropractic field um, uh, and talking to researchers in, in other fields and see if you can get a foot in there. Because that's, that's kind of how we got into KI, we were the first chiropractors really to my, my supervisor Eben and then Cecilia, um, Bergstrom, uh, were the first two chiropractors in, at KI and they kind of paved the way for me, uh, to, to get into this. And, um, we were very lucky to have a, uh, a professor that had a really broad perspective and were willing to take a chance on um, on Lieben initially and Cecilia and now me. So uh, I think getting to know researchers is a, is a good way. And if you can, you know, participate in, in research networks because that's really important to to have be part of collecting really good data. Excellent. I really uh, like the advice to try to expand your knowledge base, try, you know, not be afraid to do something new because as a chiropractor with a different skill set, that that is very attractive to uh, working with other colleagues from different professions, uh, but also within the profession, just to be able to contribute new knowledge, different knowledge, knowledge that, uh, you know, we, we haven't done. So I think that's absolutely fantastic advice. And I must say, I've really enjoyed our talk today and, and I've learned quite a few new things. So I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's been a, a great pleasure and, uh, hope to perhaps be on it again in the future when I've something else to <laughs> report. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you. I hope you've learned as much as I have about maintenance care, the Carl Fellows, and much, much more. Stay tuned for more episodes. If you have suggestions or comments about the show, please let me know.